Ringer Dish is the place for all things celebrity, from major celebrity moments like the Met Gala and the Oscars, to the weird habits of the stars you love, to refreshers on the biggest tabloid stories from the last 20 years, Ringer Dish has all the vital details. On Tuesdays, catch Jam Session with Juliet Littman and Amanda Dobbins for Royal Family Rumors, Celebrity Real Estate, and Industry Analysis. And on Fridays, listen to Tea Time with me, Kate, and Amelia for lightning fast coverage on pressing celebrity news and gossip. Check out Ringer Dish on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. to the Prestige TV podcast feed. Uh, I am Joanna Robinson. Nora Princiati is here. We are here to talk about Euphoria Season 2, Episode 4. You who cannot see, think of those who can, is the, is the title of the episode. Hi, Nora. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Joanna. How are you? I'm doing really well. We are, we've got a special little segment for the show this week. It's very exciting. We have a guest. Nora, do you want to tell the folks who we've got on the show this week? It's Eric Dane. Eric Dane is on Cal- the show today. Cal Jacobs himself. And I just like, I don't know Nora that well. We're getting to know each other, but I just want to like, I wish you guys had been there when I told Nora over Slack uh, that Eric Dane was going to be on the show. A lot of caps, all caps, exclamation marks. Nora, clearly a Grey's Anatomy uh, person. Nora, how are you feeling? He's just very important to me as, as a person in, in television, in theater. I don't know if Eric Dane will listen to this this full pod. If he does, I just want him to know, like, not to not to brag here, but like Tom Brady is a fairly regular part of my life, and that is really no big deal. I was starstruck for the first time in a long time, just when you slacked me that Eric Dane was <laughs> going to be gracing this podcast feed. Like that is just so exciting and a really great episode, uh, as we will discuss for him to be, um part of our discussion of because he got a lot of a lot of cal in this one. So it's like a part two, I I would say of like two part cal uh extravaganza, which you know not every euphoria fan is here for, but we definitely are. And uh so we will get to that. We'll get to our conversation with Eric at the end of this episode. Uh, first I'm gonna do some 
messages, emails, DMs, corrections, comments, concerns. We had a lot of corrections this week, mostly directed at me. Uh, A light correction on, uh, I think we mentioned, we we said that Rue was dancing to Frank Sinatra. Bunch of people wrote in to say that was Bobby Darren. Okay. Oh, that was the Bobby Darren version of that of Call Me Irresponsible. Yes, exactly. And then the uh we we had this question about Kat on the show, the character of Kat and how she was sort of marginalized this season. And a bunch of people wrote in to let me know that there is a story burbling around. It's not been reported anywhere, like in the trades, but it's been on like uh Dumois and like some other places about how the actress, um, didn't like the direction of her character, thought it was going too far, was too dark. And so Sam Levinson, instead of rewriting it, just cut her out of season two, essentially. Um, so I, I think the number floating around is like 75% of her storyline was cut out of the season. I have some questions about this. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna float a question about this. How do we feel about that being? a response to an actress versus I've seen some chatter around the fact that like Sydney Sweeney, who's the only actress who uh, has like, you know, no nudity clause has a massively expanded role in the show. That is a question that some people have of like, are we seeing so much Cassie because of Sydney Sweeney's comfort in that, in that regard? I don't know. Do you have any immediate thoughts or feelings about this? I guess my immediate question is, I'm having a hard time imagining the conversation of an actor on Euphoria and Sam about this character is too dark. Like I I imagine Barbie Ferrer is great. I I feel like she probably knows what show she's on. Yeah. I don't, I mean, until we get it more reported on or until like someone wants to talk about it, this is all sort of rumor. That seems odd to me, but I had, I had so many people message me about it that i that it felt like it rose to, we should talk about it. So, I mean, that makes sense. And people obviously, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. Um, that does strike me as a little bit odd. I also, there are ebbs and flows to, we talk about this as an ensemble show all the time. There's, there's, there are ebbs and flows to that. Also, Sydney Sweeney, her star has been on the rise so significantly. I, I don't think that it would require some sort of thing going on behind the scenes to emphasize for there to be the desire to emphasize her character in this season. But who knows? Maybe we'll find out more. The last uh, correction sort of thing, this one I think falls on me, uh, is that I, and, and, and I did a lot of research about this particular thing. I got so many messages about the fact that Cal's flashback is supposed to take place in the 90s, not the 80s. And um, I'm pretty sure that going into Euphoria podcast, I didn't think I'd have to do some math, but here's some math for you. When does this show take place? The modern timeline. Rue says it's 2019. She says she was born shortly after 9-11, 2001. So that's that roughly works out for her character. Um, even though it's now 2022, right? Um, the show takes place in 2019 because that's when it started. Uh, in this episode, episode four, Cal says he hasn't been back to the bar for 25 years. And that means the flashback took place in 1994. Uh, This is something they talked about on the inside of the episode that we don't have access to because we're recording in advance. So we can't watch those like little HBO segments that they do after the episode. Um, I will just say one thing in my defense (laughs) about this. I'm curious again about the soundtrack 
um, of this segment because I looked up all the music that played during that Cal cold open and it's all late eighties stuff. It's in excess Depeche Mode, Erasure, Roxette. Uh, all of that stuff is like 84 to 88, uh, is what they were listening to. The only 90s song in that sequence is the Lenny Kravitz song. So I just think that, and then in this episode, when we get Cal sort of reliving his youth, it's again, all mid to late eighties songs. So it's not like there's a harsh line between 89 and 90 and you stop listening to 80s music. I just think it's a really interesting choice to set something in 94-ish and uh, and use all iconic 80s music. Um, that's all. Any Any thoughts, Nora? Accountability is good. I'm grateful to our listeners for keeping us honest and for being engaged with the specifics. I do think that responding to the vibe of a scene and some of the musical choices, the aesthetic choices. If a scene is sort of giving eighties, that might be more important in the world of euphoria than it was 25 years before this date in history. Like it's just not that kind of show. No, I did that. I mean, like the creator said in the, in the post episode thing, like we were inspired by listening to nineties music to do this. And that the, we designed the hair after like nineties, Matt Damon, nineties, Brad Pitt. And I'm like, I can see it when you tell me that it's nineties, I can see it. it. It feels a little blurry to me. Well, so- and early nineties is just responding to things that happened in the eighties. Like that's, I, I think we should allow that to be sort of wishy-washy. Anyway, I don't mean to be defensive. I miss I miss stuff all the time. So it, it was the 90s, not the 80s. The math is a little dicey, but basically, like Nate's older brother is 25. His shitty older brother still lives at home. That's fine to do. Um, all right. The Joe Burrow sunglasses that you brought up, Nora. I got a lot of messages about those as well. Um, one of our listeners, Logan, sent me a TikTok uh all about the sunglasses. Uh, you can get them uh on the Jeff Bezos website if you want. They're around. You can get them. You could be like Cassie and Joe Burrow if you want to. So you can get the real sunglasses on Mm -hmm. that aforementioned website. Like the Cartier ones. Oh, is he wearing, was he wearing Cartier? Were they both wearing Cartier? Okay. No, you cannot get similar glasses. (laughs) Get similar glasses. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Bobby running about the, uh, the drug deal. Okay. So Rue goes to Lori and gets a massive case of drugs, which we see that she's been helping herself to. Very smart, bro. Um, Bobby wrote in about the believability of that deal. Like, he was like, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Why would a seasoned drug dealer like Lori give an apparent addict um, thousands of dollars worth of drugs? Uh, A listener named Lefty wrote in and said he thinks this is a way for Lori to get to Fez because she sees, like, you know, some sort of leverage around Fez having to do with Rue and the suitcase. We don't know the answer because we haven't seen the episodes, but... I think it's safe to say, since Rue does not appear to be enacting her drug pyramid scheme, her MLM uh, drug, she said she's just uh, testing the merchandise for herself, that this is not going to go well um, for her in the end. Uh, what do you think, Nora? I agree that it's not going to go well. I also, even it has stretched my uh, credulity, even for an addict like Rue, to not be constantly thinking about, like to not have the only thing that is ever on her mind, just what do I do with the suitcase of drugs where my life has been threatened if I don't sell them? I I think it would make a lot of sense as a tool to get to Fez. And if we are asked to believe that Lori would make that deal with Rue, I guess it's just because, you know, I mean, come on, she was wearing her mom's 
business casual. <laughs> Zendaya's very touting her GPA. <laughs> it's the magic of Zendaya. Come on. <laughs> James Jordan, James Jordan is a as a representative of Gen Z to say this this I thought was an interesting thing on the ongoing music debate that we're having, right? Um, where Jake says music is easier to find than ever. That's true. Like growing up, um, you couldn't just like log on to Spotify and play, you know, give give me 90s stuff or whatever. And being the person who knows a good song that no one knows makes you cool, especially if it's older and you have physical copies. That's fun. I mean, I hope that's true. I don't know if that's true, but I think it's, I hope it's really true that Gen Z is like leaning back into physical media. I love physical media. I'm Huge a big fan Huge final of sales year, 2021. Great. great. Uh, and last but not least, Jake wrote in to suggest uh, with a great guest host suggestion. And I just, this is a message from me to Jake to let you know I'm I'm looking into it. Okay. So let's get into the episode itself. We're going to start with Cassie because Jesus Christ. I wrote down in my notes, basic instinct vibe when we get the Cassie and Nate uh, scene. How do we feel about this, Nora? It's not good. Uh, she does not seem to be in a good place. The funny thing, it just, it's funny that we were just talking about um, Sydney Sweeney and kind of having her, her star on the rise. This was like the only time that I've ever seen white Lotus, Sydney Sweeney appear for just a hot <laughs> second in Cassie. Just mm-hmm. when she all of a sudden has been going completely when she's with Nate and she's been losing her marbles and is, yelling at him and they're fighting and she's, you know, saying all these things about Maddie and threatening him and blackmailing him and and all, all this stuff. And then all of a sudden Nate flips out and then she just goes, okay, bye. And leaves. (laughs) That was white Lotus. Um, Sydney Sweeney just for a hot second. I was like, Oh, I've seen you before. We do not feel good about it. She's clearly having a tough time. She's not putting herself in a good situation. The thing that is sort of uh, interesting to me is how her family situation is sort of subtly orbiting a lot of the plot lines when Nate's are so foregrounded, but there is a little bit of a, a mirroring of those things, I think, like particularly, okay, at, at the end of this episode, not to skip forward, but... Nate's dad leaves his family, right? Like there is this fascinating parallel between the two of them while they're also figuring out their own relationship, Nate's relationship with, with Maddie, Cassie's relationship with Maddie that I I found to be sort of an undercurrent in this episode. I think keeping um, the Lexi play in our minds is a, is like, it's a light touch in this episode. This isn't a very Lexi intensive episode, even though she's at this party. Um, but we get the cut between the Cassie auditions and a conversation that Lexi is having with her sister. Um, I really liked that device and I like that as an ongoing opportunity, um, to again, keep that sort of meta narrative going in the series. Um, and then there's, this awful birthday party scenario that we have. And um, Cassie's loss of control. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's awful to watch. My question to you is, do we feel like this is still, like, t- to our earlier conversation about this idea of Cassie's obsession with Nate paralleling, like, Rue's 
addiction to drugs, like a, an addiction plot? Do we think it's something else? Like, what do you, what do you think? I think there's a lot of interesting ideas the show's putting forward about femininity and, and womanhood through Cassie. And part of how that represents itself is through the question of when she acts, is she acting for herself or is she acting for male approval, Nate's approval, just out of this need to be loved or wanted. And this was, that had been more of an open question to me before this episode. Mm. This episode shows someone who is acting and existing essentially for Nate for a man's attention, approval, mm. maybe love, Performance, but yeah. that feels like a stretch. And she's really betraying her best friend to do it. So I, I think it just, maybe that makes it seem more like an addiction. It, it definitely makes it seem unhealthy is what I would say. If, if we're looking at it on a parallel track to Rue's behavior. I love you bringing up this idea of performance because like that cut between the auditions and Cassie is so interesting. Last week we saw Cassie's like abusive self-care routine, the like getting ready routine. And this episode she does the like costume change, the balloon Sinead O'Connor dance feels like a performance more than anything else. Um, and then at the end I was, cause I was trying to figure out the, the closing shot, you know, there's all these like portrait closing shots of various characters and hers is sitting in front of the mirror with flowers all around her. She, yeah, she's in this like sort of <laughs> love shack, fancy, crazy vanity mirror box, wedding cake kind of. Yeah, but it almost looks like an actress like with the flowers from her perform. You know, like some stage prima donna with the with the flowers, uh, the accolades from her performance all around oh. her, sitting in front of vanity. I don't know, or it's just a portrait thing because we started with a bunch of like actual art portraits, which we'll talk about. But um. I, I thought that that was a really interesting visual. But this idea of like Cassie and her performative, I mean, I just want to, I don't know. I just want to slap her and hug her at the same time. That's how I feel. And like in terms of costuming, we also get, I, I really liked your point last week about the relationship between Maddie and the family she's babysitting for, Minka Kelly's character and, and that family. Because in this episode, we see her not only dressed up again, in her clothes as she, you know, Nate comes to the house to talk to her about their relationship and love. But we see her looking out the window at like Mika Kelly and her husband playing with a kid in the pool. So it's like, I think it really does reinforce your point about this idea that she's playing dress up in a, in a fantasy of a life that she wants. Um, and, 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 you know, that, that's a big part of being young and especially being a young girl is just sort of like trying on personas Outfits, costumes, ideas, you know? I th- I don't think that this is a particular concern to really anyone, maybe even including Minka Kelly and her husband, but not sure she bought the champagne. No. What's my no, feeling? A large bottle of very expensive champagne. It's true. I want to talk about Cassie, Cassie and Lexi's mom. Uh, yeah. Alana Ubach, a great actress, an actress that I absolutely love, and I think she's fantastic in this role. Uh, it was really good in season one. And I love her as this, like, I mean, absolutely a moderately functioning alcoholic 
and also like the fun mom, right? And so she's like, I'm the fun mom and I'm going to throw this party and you girls get to drink and I'm going to twerk and all this sort of stuff. But, but, uh, and, and what that means for Cassie and Lexi, the, I mean, where are these parents and these kids' lives? And and I don't I don't think it's a one to one because I would say that Rue's mom is like a very invested and present parent. You know what I mean? But like, yeah. you know, and and so is Jules' dad, uh, an invested and present parent. But like, um, I I think it's another one of those on the nose musical musical cues from Euphoria when we hear sometimes I feel like a motherless child playing over like Cassie. Uh, bringing in the birthday cake. Tell me your Alana Yubak feelings. Her presentation is kind of either it's this big issue or she's sort of the fun mom. I tend to gear much more towards like, like what's the last line that we hear in this entire episode? It's since before we even existed, you know, like it's not that it's all her fault. Right. But I definitely got so much and it was presented subtly, but I got so much out of this episode that I felt was trying to sort of direct us again, subtly, but to think about Cassie and Lexi's growing up, like think about what their lives were like, think about sort of the sources of Cassie's need for attention to think about why she's, why she is the way that she is. And there is in some ways something fun and innocent about, okay, her mom is throwing the party where everybody's drinking and, you know, she helps her out of the hot tub after she's thrown up all over everybody. But uh, my read on that was very not sympathetic, just in a subtle way. Oh, I'm not, I'm not sympathetic at all. It's like, it's damaged. She's like, by fun mom, I put hard quotes around that. And because I think that anyone who's trying to be the fun mom, if you're trying to be a pal more than a parent, like you're not doing your parenting job. Right. And so I, I think that, uh, I think it's really smart to have her there. Well, and again, because especially like it connects her to Nate and it made me wonder if there's something about the, you know, that even when Cassie and Nate are fighting, Nate calls Cassie Maddie and we've had this ongoing idea of, okay, is Cassie trying to be Maddie in certain instances does Nate think he wants Maddie, but actually wants Cassie? Where, you know, where are the connections between Nate and both women? Where are they stronger? Where are they more legitimate? Where are the weak points? And and one that really keeps coming up to me is this sort of toxic link between Cassie and Nate just as they relate to their families. And maybe that's why they are totally destructive together, but it is something that ties them. Let's, let's go over to Rue, Jules, Elliot world. I want to talk about like Rue, sexuality, worthiness, a lot of questions here. Um, First out, first of all, let us highlight, please. One of my favorite fake orgasms I've ever heard ever. Not only is Zendaya's fake orgasm, but then Hunter Schaefer as Jules is like imitation of a pitch perfect imitation. It was really of, good of the fake orgasm. It's really stuff. good. Incredible. Not stuff. convincing. No. Not convincing. Rue. No, not remotely. Um, 
But, you know, right before she fakes his orgasm, she, you know, she's talking about how much she loves Jules. And we get a flash of a bunch of famous pieces of artwork, right? We get Botticelli's Venus, John and Yoko on the cover of Rolling Stone, Frida Kahlo, Magrice the Lovers. We get <laughs> this, the pot, the pottery throwing scene from Ghost, Titanic, Snow White with a little, uh, a great consent joke in there, and then Brokeback Mountain. Um, what I thought was kind of interesting is that in all of these scenarios rue is cast as the masculine half i think in every instance there's something very complex and interesting going on with the sexuality here because something that hunter schaefer said in an interview was that elliot presents this like version of rue like he he's going to remind her a lot of rue um but he's a man and historically Jules has been interested in men. Like, this is her first relationship with a woman, right? And she said, I'm not interested in men anymore. It's like something she said a couple times. But like, is that true? You know what I mean? Or is that just what she she wants to think? And like, I think casting Rue as like the masculine, even though that is, that montage is theoretically in Rue's head, like, but Rue's not, um, you know, a man, like that's not who she is and that's not her, you know, gender as far as we understand it. So I just think, I think it's an interesting thing and in like maybe speaking to a disconnect between these two people, despite their love for each other and like what they actually want sexually or emotionally. What do you think? Yeah. Well, and, and part of what bothers Jules about Rue's fake orgasm is not just that she's feeling the disconnect between herself and Rue, but she, she's like, if I'm not good at going down on you, like that makes me feel like a dude. Like mm-hmm. that makes me feel like a guy. I wouldn't, why would, if I suck at this, it's because I'm like a guy, which is one very funny, but two, I think speaks to some of that as well. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a very, um, real human and especially teenage reaction of like insecurity. Is it like something I'm doing? I, we had a couple questions about like Rue's physical health or her relationship to her body. Jackson ran in to, to highlight a couple times that we've seen Rue and Jules on their bikes and Rue is always lagging behind Jules. She, you know, and Rue herself will call it out, but like, you know, physically Rue is not like in her body, her relationship with her body. And Christoph wrote in and he said, I was wondering how you felt about Rue's sexual vulnerability. I bring this up because there are multiple scenes in episode three where Rue and Jules make out, but Rue doesn't feel comfortable bearing herself out to Jules. Jules wants to be more intimate, but it's clear Rue is really scared to let anyone, including herself, into that space. I think it's connected to her drug addiction in the sense that once she begins to accept her body and herself, she'll start to show true signs of recovery, in my opinion. I don't, I don't know anything about that last part, but I just, I think... You know, there's there's something really interesting going on. Some of it is just like ordinary teenage feelings about your relationship and your connection to your body. Um, and and Jules's experience versus Rue's lack of experience and stuff like that. Um, but is there something else bigger going on here? What do you think? Well, in in any reality of, of this world, Rue's body would probably be in really rough shape. It makes total sense that she can't bike as fast or as well as Jules. And then even think about think about how Rue dresses, right? Everything is big and baggy and she wears sweatshirts and just does not seem comfortable showing her body in ways that most other characters in the show, right? Everybody's pretty comfortable exposing themselves in, in certain ways, with some exceptions. But Rue does, I, I think that's a very clear character trait is the discomfort in in her own body. And probably some of that is internal feelings. And then some of it is the toll that 
presumably her drug use would take on her physically. There's this small shot at the end of the episode after Jules has found out um, that that Rue has been lying to her, where we see Elliot's like Elliot's hand and and two cut marks on Jules's body, and this is you know this reflects a season one plotline about uh, Jules and her relationship to self harm. And I just thought this quote from uh, Euphoria's trans consultant, Scott Turner Schofield, from a Polygon interview was really interesting. Um, he says, I think when I watched episode four in season one, Sam took me to the edit booth and showed me the opening episode four where Jules is a child and it's really hard. She's in a mental institution for self-harm. And the thing is, like, self-harming isn't about Jules being trans, except that, of course, it is. Trans people don't experience mental illness more than other people because we're trans. It's a symptom of what you do to us because we're trans. But I think this, the show continues to try to explore, um, you know, Rue's discomfort with her body is is a kind of dysphoria, you know what I mean, in its own way. And then Jules's ongoing questions about her body is is another thing that the show is interested in. Um, do you have any thoughts or feelings about this? Well, it's it's how Jules processes something that she takes as a rejection, right? Like she's in some ways feeling sexually rejected, which you would imagine, and especially hearing that that process is on multiple planes, right? Like one, she's in a relationship and is just figuring out that relationship and then has all of these questions about identity and sense of self that add a whole nother layer to it. Last but not least on on these tr- this trio, I want to talk about the what I'm calling the White Claw heist. Um, the... <laughs> um, Jules and Elliot steal some white coat. Also, I just have to say, I just have to say this. Shout out to Jules and anyone who's ever been directed to like go get a case of beer and instead is like, oh, going to get something else. Sorry. (laughs) Get some white claw. Uh, For me, it's going to be a shout out to Elliot for part of his whole distraction tactic to call the clerk Kramer and then say, didn't you get canceled? (laughs) Unbelievable. Just unbelievably funny. So, so funny. good. So good. But but the end result is that Rue, who's drinking and on drugs, and Elliot knows it and Jules doesn't, um, that it pushes her to a place where she absolutely lashes out at Jules and demands to get out of the car. Um, Sam Levinson said something in the post-interview, episode interview last week about really wanting to push Rue's likability, which is something that we talked about last week. And this, I mean, like her lashing out at Jules. Uh, for no reason uh, is is a big part of it. How did how did that land with you? It's working. She's pushing the limits. I don't think. I think the power of Zendaya is strong, and I still very much feel like I'm on not on Rue's side against Jules, but just I'm rooting for her. I, I want things to get better, but it's interesting that that's happening at the same time as. You know, one of the most, the sort of most wonderful surprises about season two um, for me has been how charming the Elliot Jules relationship is. And we've talked about the idea of, you know, love triangles are hard because you're apt to see the incomer as sort of an interloper. They've done such a good job of avoiding that. And part of it is because. There's so much charisma 
both just from Elliot, but from the the two of them interacting, I find really, really like fun to watch, charming, sweet. And when Rue is the destructive force, and then on the other side of it, you do get this like this lightness and this warmth. Uh, I think it's not just Rue's behavior that's testing the bounds of that likability. It's what that behavior is being contrasted to in that quote unquote love triangle. So hugely positive surprise that that is not only not a detractor, but a value add to this season. I, I'm just very impressed by that. Absolutely. Like, and, and especially like it is so hard to pull off bringing in a third into a relationship um, that we were maybe rooting for or invested in and not feel like, you know, he's nothing but an interloper. So I'm just, yes, ending like, you know, the the characters written well the perform the performance is fantastic um and and you know especially when he's like I don't it's heartbreaking because he's like I don't want to lie to you and it's like him saying that to her versus everything that Rue is doing to Jules in in this enormous the enormity of her lie you know what I mean the lie is so much bigger of what Rue is hiding from from Jules so um yeah uh, speaking of of uh, young men that we are fond of and tender about uh fez fear check uh we just got a quick check in with fez this week and mouse's uh girlfriend uh i think baby mama is uh is looking mouse the drug dealer who died at the end of uh season one so how are you feeling nervous bad i'm worried about my guy so many ominous camera shots from outside of his window which made me feel like, is someone watching? Is someone going to shoot through that window? What is happening? I'm worried. Must protect at all costs. <laughs> uh, to zoom back to Rue, uh, the so she does this horrible thing to Jules and goes home and does drugs in her room, this golden light, all this sort of stuff. And then we get a payoff or a part of this thing that you and I have been talking about all season, which is this idea of like church and God and religion in this stunning sequence where Rue walks into a church as part of her like drug trip. Um, Labyrinth, the musical artist who does like the music for the series is there singing in this church, uh, you know, a new and an original song created for the sequence. Um, his, the color of his jacket matches the color of the hoodie, which is her dad's hoodie. So we cut between her dancing with him and her dancing uh, with her dad. And, uh, you know, Rue pushes the envelope on unlikability. And then there's the sequence that I just feel incredibly tender and sad and protective um, for her, especially, you know, she says stuff like, I'm not a good person. You don't even know me anymore to like her dad. what do you think, Nora? Yeah, I, I was interested because there's spliced in there. There is that little moment where the, I think it's the, you see the church pews, but then it turns into Lexi sitting in the auditorium seeing auditions for the play. We talked about that last week, just the idea of, okay, what are you going to be saved by? And how many of these characters or which ones is Sam expressing himself and his lived experiences through? So I thought that was an interesting little nugget thrown in there to continue that idea. But it was just a beautifully shot sequence and really the most effective way that they can play with Zendaya slash Rue's likability is for it to be a push-pull, right? Like nobody wants to just turn on Rue. So the highs and lows 
and coming back through this sort of emotionally gut-wrenching, um, but also beautifully done sequence, I thought was very effective because particularly after, you know, two episodes in a row where we've seen Rue be manipulative and cruel to her sister and then now to to Ali and then to Jules, that that does add up. Yeah. So I think it was a, a good idea to bring it back in that way. Balance the equation. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's really interesting about... Um, the church scene is that like, I think other than Jules, like this is a predominantly black church um, that she's walking into. And something that I thought was so interesting about the holiday special with Rue and Ali is he's talking to her about music and he says something, I think it was, or maybe it was anyway, at one point he says like, don't you have any black friends? And like, what's true is that like Rue doesn't. And and, like, what is her connection? You know, she's, she's a mixed race, like a character. Like what is her connection to that? community, that side of her identity. It's not something that, you know, she herself seems to have spent a lot of time exploring. What do you think? Yeah. It it seems it's, I, I think that would be really interesting. So I hope that that is sort of a clue. All right, let's go to Cal. (laughs) Hats off, man. (laughs) Eric Dane. Obviously we're going to talk to Eric himself about all of this, but this is just sort of a bravura. Like, I don't, I mean, Eric answered this question, but at the end of this episode, I was like, is that the last we're going to see of Cal? Like, is that it for Cal on the show? It's like, he, he's exiting his family. Like what, what, what place is there for Cal if he's not, you know, circling Nate. But, um, I just thought this was tremendous. We returned to the bar. Uh, we get a really like sad, dance where, you know, young Derek appears in the fantasy again. Um, and then we get this, you know, incredible leaving the family, <laughs> pull the house down, pee on the carpet as you go. Uh, goodbye from Cal. Um, I, one thing that I thought was really interesting is like, as he's talking about all this stuff, um, you know, when he, when he gets kicked out of the bar, he's, he stops and he looks at this mural of John Wayne and later he calls himself the man with no name, which is Clint Eastwood sort of thing. So this idea of this, like, hyper-masculinity, quote-unquote toxic masculinity is something that like helped warp and shape him. But also I think what's interesting is as he's talking about his sexual proclivities, he's still talking about it in a hyper-masculine kind of way, even as he's dropping like F-bombs and other things. Um, The bad F-bomb, the one that I would not say myself. Um, (laughs) what, what, What do you think? Yeah, well, so one thing that I guess we've never really talked about this um, sort of explicitly, but there's a lot of, there are just so many things where I, I wonder, this show doesn't, it's not trying to trick you that often. It's not like there are tons of, you know, red herrings or it's not really that kind of show. But I, I do feel like there's sort of a puzzle that eventually I want to feel like I've pieced together just in terms of the show's sort of belief system. And part of that is because there are just so many different, you know, there's this grounding theme of sort of why, why are we the way that we are? Or, you know, is it nature versus nurture? What, what do we do when we're in these circumstances um, or dealing with, pain or whatever causes the need for whatever our version of 
euphoria is? Like, where does that come from? And whenever I see a connection between two characters whose storylines don't intersect that much, it always makes me wonder like, okay, is there some sort of parallel there? And yeah, like there's so much of Cal's, the way that he presents himself as a sexual being that's like, I'm a rugged cowboy. And so even just the brief, like Brokeback Mountain shot in the Jules and Rue sequence didn't feel like an accident to me. And and it's so interesting to see these characters who are not necessarily connected through all of the plot lines interacting with the same ideas about, you know, femininity, masculinity, how that plays with sexual identity and sexual orientation. And I'm not sure what the answer is, but I'm fascinated to find out. So I guess if we're talking about the conversation of like, okay, where does Cal go, go from here? That is in some ways, if he has freed himself by leaving his family, then maybe the answer is now it's time for him to actually figure some stuff out. But I I do want to just say the ending, the, the sequence when he's at the bar is is amazing. And then that gets interspersed with Cassie, which is another example of just, yeah. okay, how does all of this fit together? Yeah. But the end with his family. Oh my God. What a spectacular scene of television. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want to acknowledge Paula Marshall who plays uh, Marsha, his wife, Paula Marshall, a great uh, TV actress of the nineties. Um, I thought she was great in the scene. Um, you know, the kids, the boys are just sort of their you know, Jacob Elordi as is, is Nate is giving just reflective surfaces to bounce off of, but like Eric Dane, I just, I th- I thought it was, I thought it was really fantastic. And I thought it, it, like throughout this has been, I mean, it's funny when I, when I post on Twitter that like about how much I liked last week's episode and how I cried at the cold open and that tweet went like, you know, semi quasi tiny bit viral, a bunch of like euphoria fans were like, fuck you. Why do I, why would I give a shit about Cal? And I was like, I, uh, I, I can, there are definitely characters where I'm like, no matter what you do to try to get me to empathize with character, I'm too far gone and I can't f- access it. That's not my relationship to Cal, but it certainly seems to be some Euphoria fans relationship to Cal. Um, I find this whole performance so compelling and I find what Eric Dane has done here, especially in relationship to the like, way he entered pop culture via McSteamy, via Grey's Anatomy to be really just like an incredibly interesting choice. Well, and and I do think that there are some sort of in-jokes in that scene about the relationship between the show and its audience, which involves a lot of the, the progressive politics of Gen Z in particular and even people who aren't Gen Z who are watching this show, just understanding what that is because there's part of this, you know, Cal is, is monologuing basically. And he has done all of these horrible things. And then he calls out his family for being, you know, for not being progressive and for having all of these regressive views about, you know, men and women and the nuclear family and relationships and, you know, whether it would be so much worse to them or less bad to them if he'd cheated with a woman, if he'd gone to a strip club and, and, you know, um, cheated on his wife with a woman. 
And there's something just so deliciously funny. And I love when the show gets a little bit wacky and pokes fun at things like that. I I just thought it was so well done. I got so much out of it. I thought it was fantastic. I really loved him calling his uh, family assholes. I I just loved him. He was like, I'm lonely. I'm lonely, guys. (laughs) That's the issue. It's like, all right, it's a little more complicated than that at this point. But I suppose there's some truth in that. Nathaniel, whole fucking life as a secret. Like, I don't know. I, th- I I thought it was all just really interesting and fun. As you said, it's like fun and funny. And like, we should point out, and he takes the photo off the wall and he leaves. And it's the photo with the mysterious the third mis- boy. Mysterious. He says, we all have these secrets. Like, did that kid, like, did that kid die? Like, what happened to that kid? Like, you know, big questions. A lot of questions. I don't think I'm, I I have a rule in the world of Taylor Swift, which is that there are no accidents and I'm I feel starting like to feel an, like there are no accidents in, in euphoria. I feel like if that had been an accident, it would not, they would not have redrawn attention to it. You know what I mean? Unless right. again, they're, um, you know, lampshading the whole thing. Um, fantastic stuff. Okay. So before we get to our interview with Eric Dane, before we do our like wrap up, is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you want to make sure that we mention? I think we pretty much covered it. All right. So who, who's in most need of a hug this week, Nora, on you for Man, like the people at the bar or anyone who was <laughs> on the road when Cal was driving with oh no hands. God. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to give it to Cassie. I feel like yeah, she's my that, ongoing person, but oh my God. Um, and, uh, that brings me right to acceptable, tor- terrifying, horrifying moment. Cause for me, of course it's vomit in a jacuzzi. How about, how about you? Yeah. It, not a lot in this one. No, <laughs> yeah. like nobody got shot. Nobody got bashed in the head. So I, I do think that this, this one was, um, was sort of loving on my my delicate sensibilities, but vomit in the jacuzzi, you know, not great. <laughs> um, who would you actually want to party with this week? It really remains Maddie. I have to say, this was the episode where I, I found myself watching going, oh, I think Maddie might be my favorite character. Like, I think I might just be like really solid in that and, and know that that's true. Um, I do like her just turning on Nate in the jacuzzi. Great stuff. Uh, you know, she is she is a good friend, I think, to Kat, I think, uh, in their interactions, you know? So, uh, and she is, I, I did think, we talked about how smart she is. And that was the first thing that Nate points out. You know, she's like, why did you love me? Or, you know, why do you, why are you, why have you been interested in me when they're talking at Minka Kelly's house? And, he goes, you're smart and you're cruel, but you're not actually. And centering just how sharp she is, I think has been a really nice thing to watch in Maddie's character development. And then, yeah, just the fact that, I mean, Cassie is doing everything she possibly can to end this relationship or reigniting relationship between Maddie and Nate, and it has no effect, but the <laughs> smallest thing cannot stop Maddie and Nate from being Maddie and Nate and getting in between themselves. And I, I found that very funny. For me, the person I want to party is, uh, okay, it's Cassie and Lexi's mom, but like n- no kids are there. But we're going to play some Montel Jordan 
and she's going to show me how she's learned her twerk, and it's going to be a great time. Um, <laughs> all right, favorite flashy camera move slash shot. Um, I will say there's a series of these shot through windows. You called out sort of Fez, but there's Cassie dancing by herself, Rue dancing by herself, uh, Nate through the window after his dad leaves, um, you know, and Fez. And I think the dancing by themselves one, I think there's such an interesting, again, it feels like a performance, a stage thing. It's like Cassie, Cassie's in her own reality. And when you're in there with her and you're hearing the Sinead O'Connor, like on the soundtrack and you're like, okay, this is, this is something. And then you see it from outside and it's horrifying. It was already bad, but then it's horrifying. Or Rue, when she's having her drug trip, and you're like, this is so emotive, you know, and then you see her from outside the window, and she's just dancing by herself in a stupor, and it's deeply upsetting. I thought that whole series of shots was really interesting. Yeah, that was great. Uh, we talked about some of the sort of religious imagery. One that I wanted to point out was Maddie in the swimming pool positioned mm. like she's on the cross. And there's yeah. this beautiful shot where, you know, it's sort of a, um, not an infinity pool, but it's looking over this amazing yeah. view. But the cor- one corner of the pool is shot so that it's coming to this very sharp point. And mm. I am i wasn't fully sure sort of what the takeaway from that imagery was supposed to be, but there was something that just was very striking about it to me. The other thing that this is sort of subtle, but they do such a good job of shooting Nate so that it is always so obvious that he's incredibly tall. Mm. Like when Mm -hmm. Cassie opens the door at the birthday party, I I have to imagine that that camera angle was just like practically straight down (laughs) because she looks like she's four foot two (laughs) and he is just towering. And what it says about you know, the, the power dynamic and he's this like larger than life person to her. And she's just sort of little and and helpless. Very effective. I felt. I also want to shout out, there's a shot of, um, Hunter Schaefer jewels at the end of the episode when she's looking out, it's raining and like the rain on the window reflected on her face looks like tears. And then there's that incredible backlit shot of her sitting on the bed, like sort of pulling out through the door that I thought was just, I mean, just Absolutely beautiful. Um, Speaking of uh, Elliot's bedroom, which is probably actually where I would want to spend the most time uh, of any location in Euphoria, uh, Needle Drop, I'm going to give it to the Jonathan Richmond song, I Was Dancing in the Lesbian Bar. Uh, I love Jonathan Richmond. I'm a big Jonathan Richmond fan. Um, So uh, I just, I thought that was an incredible moment. How about you? So uh, this was not the most, like, important to emotion or plot development, but uh, it is the law that if you play don't you in an episode of television, <laughs> I am required oh, okay. by God and man to select it. It's in your contract, your writer. Okay. Uh, and then last but not least, the Maddie Perez honorary fit check. Coming out of this episode, two things. Number one, a convincing Halloween costume, I think, would be Cassie in the pink bikini with like balloons. Uh, like, <laughs> cause when she walks out of the house and she's still wearing the balloons, it's like a whole thing, but I'm actually going to give it to, uh, Elliot's striped sweater. He's wearing this like really beautiful, like nineties boy striped sweater, uh, look that I really loved. How about you? So I actually went in a similar direction. 
sweater game in this this episode was on point. Not only Elliot, but also, hate to say it, Nate. Nate at Minka Kelly's house. Great sweater. Great sweater game. All right. Sweaters, sweaters on uh all absolute assholes and and little cupcakes like Elliot as well. All right. So that's look, a mean boy who looks good in a sweater <laughs> is the most dangerous thing on earth. So careful. <laughs> Be careful out there, everybody. We're not giving the fake check to Cal and his head bandage uh, and shirtlessness in the bar, but let's let's go anyway now to our conversation with Eric Dane. Hey, right, let me start you with this question. What, what, if any, conversations did you and Sam have before this season about what direction he wanted to go with Cal this season? Our table reads, we read the first five to seven episodes. Um, so we knew what we were getting into. You know, Cal was very contained very controlled last season. This season becomes completely unraveled. So we essentially, the conversation we had was we get to create a whole new character. We get to see Cal. We get to see the real Cal. And that was basically the hurdle for this year was to figure out who this guy was. The causes and conditions that made Cal who he was, I, you know, I feel like we touched on it a little bit. You have a very controlling father who's that there's toxic masculinity in the house and you have this kid who's, who's gay um, and working against those instincts because of the environment he's in. And obviously we see in episode three, um, the origin of that story with his best friend, Derek and had Cal not been backed into, I guess, quote unquote, doing the right thing with, with Marsha, um, we would have seen a very different lifestyle choice. Um, but we didn't get to see that. So all we have left is to see, you know, what made him who he is. And I think the circumstances that he was sort of placed in, uh, makes sense to a degree. What was your reaction when you saw how it all played out on the screen? I'll, I'll say this, uh, I cried. How did you feel about this sort of gift for your character? I loved it, to be honest with you. I thought it was fantastic, yeah. but uh, nonetheless heartbreaking. And it, it, it makes sense that Cal, you know, spent the majority of his time trying to put up this facade of, a, of an existence. I thought the kid who played uh, young Cal was terrific. Both of them. All right. So you get an episode like this, episode four where it's just scene after scene of juicy breakdown for you to perform as an actor. Um, I know you said you did the table read, you knew it was coming, but you know, again, this feels like another gift for you. What is it like to stare down the barrel of an episode like this? Is it intimidating at all? Is it just exciting? How do you feel? I loved it. I love the challenge for me. You know, that's the golden life is the obstacles and the challenge and, and, doing whatever I can to stay vulnerable. So as an actor, it was a godsend. Um, and Sam is such a beautiful writer. You know, I don't think we changed a word from the read through to the day that we shot that scene. Um, I did think I better start learning this now because it was like five pages of dialogue, but it was so much fun to play. You know, he, Playing this character is, you know, aside from some of the behaviors that may come across as immoral or deviant or whatever label you want to attach to it, 
it's fun to play a guy that gets to cut loose like this without having to deal with real world um, consequences. Be able to walk into your house and pee on the floor and tell your <laughs> family you, you no longer want to be around them because they fucking backed you in the corner to begin with uh, was a lot of fun. It was a fun day on set. You talked about how Cal becomes completely unraveled this season, a chance to create a new character. What do you, is there a singular breaking point for Cal in all of this? And if so, what do you, what do you feel like it is? I would think when he gets the shit beat out of him by Ashtrite and he realizes, you know, when he realizes that uh, they know nothing about this tape and I've exposed much more of myself than I needed to. And when I realized that Nate is also in love with Jules and I'm kind of confronted with the idea that, that the parenting I've done has caused my child to grow up the same way I did. I don't want the same things for him. And we go from there. I think, I think for anybody getting your head bashed in with a shotgun is a breaking point, but specifically for this character, I think it knocked a little sense into him in a weird way. Yeah. He says this thing at the end of the episode where he feels free, like for the first time, it's almost a gift. This awful thing that happens happened to him. I want to ask you specifically about this Sinead O'Connor uh, drink before the war moment when, um, you know, the episode cuts between you and Sydney Sweeney's character, both lip singing to and sort of wilding out to this song. Um, what conversations do you have about the song choice or was it just presented to you? They're like, this is the song. Did you dig into the meaning of the song at all? Like, what was your relationship with that? I personally love that song. That's one of my favorites. I've been listening to it for years because I'm old. <laughs> and I remember when Sinead O'Connor was doing her thing. So I love that song. I, you know, Sam is so good with music cues that I didn't have any, I didn't have to question anything. Uh, I just went with it. I'm so much of this is just me kind of along for the ride. So I, there's very little pushback on my part. You, you know, I, I read some interviews that you gave when you, you know, right around season one, where you're talking about how, you were looking for a part like this that felt like a departure from the other parts you were being offered, that everyone felt like they knew what you could do from your years on Grey's and subsequent roles, and you didn't want to go on that lane and you wanted to show that you could do other things and go on a different lane. Yeah, I felt stuck as an artist. You know, I felt like I looked a certain way on the outside and felt a different way on the inside. And the work that I was choosing or the work that was coming my way was based on what I looked like on the outside and not necessarily encapsulated me as an artist. Um, so I took a long break and I had some moments to reflect and euphoria was just kind of a, a, a serendipitous, it just kind of fell into my lap. It was weird. I, I sat down with Sam for 45 minutes and discussed this character. And, and I, I heard that after I left the room, it was, it was it, it was done. I was him. So, yeah, it, and it has brought, you know, a different lens onto, you know, people are looking at me through a different lens now, which is nice. I never wanted to play the same role for the rest of my life. I think it's counterintuitive as an actor to just kind of be the same guy. I don't want to play to my perceived strengths. Yeah. You know, and I touched on it a little earlier. Like, I've, I've really found that, you know, with age, you know, I've learned a lot about myself and I've learned that the ability to stay vulnerable for me is where the golden life is. There's, I mean, you know, there's, there's plenty of apparent 
dissimilarities between you and Cal. So I'm not saying you are Cal or vice versa, but when you talk about that person inside of you that is different from what people might see on the outside of you, you know, what in Cal do you identify with? What reflects back on you? You know, I really identify with Cal living a double life. Oh, I, I, I for years battled with um, drug and alcohol abuse. I know what it's like to live a double life and to have to put up a facade and pretend that, that everything's okay on the outside when you're, you're dying on the inside. Um, and while the circumstances aren't very similar to my circumstances in life, the feelings are the same. I know what it's like to look a certain way on the outside and feel completely different on the inside. And I feel like that's just such a great larger message of the show that Sam is trying to communicate is this idea of all of the facades. They they look different. There are so many different faces we can wear, but that euphoria is really interested in that real pain that that is the same or is similar throughout everyone. I think the Nate Cal reflection is so interesting. You, you mentioned that earlier, this idea that Cal realizes he's just cycling what his dad did to him down to his son. But there's that really interesting line in, in this final confrontation when you say, um, you know, you're the part of me I don't understand at all is something that that Cal says to Nate. But I accept full responsibility. What is what does that mean to you? You know, he also says it, he also says something in the stairway when he tells Nate that he's his biggest regret. That Nate's my biggest regret. And I don't think Nate himself is my biggest regret. I think the regret is the opportunity I missed out on how to really kind of change the narrative and the story with what I've handed down from my father to him. It's it's uh, it's so powerful and upset. And it's like it's the kind of scene where in another show we cannot sympathize with a father calling his family assholes. But in a show like Euphoria, we're in a place. Where we're just, I mean, first of all, we see Nate do tremendously toxic things, but we're in a place where we can access all these people. We spent this whole episode with Cal watching him. I mean, do you feel like Cal is trying to kill himself in this episode? There's so many, I mean, the driving scenes alone, terrifying. I don't think he's trying to kill himself. I just don't think he cares if he achieves the goal. I'm not so sure that's what he set out to do. I think he's just, I think he's completely lost it. I think he's lost it and nothing else matters. And the last 20 some odd years of his life were a, were a lie. Cal's going through changes, Joanna. <laughs> okay. You, you know, okay. So we talked about how you want to do something demonstrably different from what you've done before, but it's really interesting because when Cal is talking about um, who he is on the stairs, he's talking to Marsha about, you know, his sexuality and who he, who he is sex with and all this kind of stuff. It reminded me a little, like, do you see a path from Mark Sloan? To, I mean, you, you said sort of glibly in season one, you're like, well, the, the thing that unites Mark Sloan and Cal Jacobs is they're both naked. Okay, that's true. But like in this, in this scene, when he's talking about his sexuality and he's talking about his sort of like voracious appetite for sex, like, do you see a connection between those two characters? And is, it, is that connection interesting? Because in Mark, we have this very classic you know, alpha male character that we got to know. And then this is just a really interesting other side of that coin. I never thought of it like that. I totally agree with you. 
yeah, I, I think there's a through line there. They're both, I mean, Cal still is very alpha male. He's just uh, moved off nurses again. (laughs) What do you think about, I mean, both Euphoria and Grace have been shows that have had tremendous cultural impact just in different ways, very different ways. What do you think of the cultural impact that Euphoria has had? It's wild. I mean, the cultural impact that Grace had was wild. And I find myself once again, at uh, a part of that cultural impact, it's it's pretty surreal, um, you know. And I I hope the Grays fans can come along on this ride with me. I I I do know they're diehard and they're ride or die fans, and they may not get the transition, but for me it made sense. And you know, to work with all these talented young adults. And Sam Levinson on a on a fearless network is just a dream come true for me. I don't know if that answered your question, but something that I think was really interesting when you were talking about season one, you were talking about, you know, there's that whole debate about whether or not Euphoria was glamorizing a certain behavior for teens. And your stance was like, no, this is if anything, this is a cautionary tale. I think that's clearer than ever in season two which is willing to go to even darker places, I think, than, than season one. What have you heard from people watching the show in terms of, I mean, you talked about your own experience with addiction, about like what this show is doing in terms of exposing realities about addiction. I don't have my thumb on the pulse, so to speak. Um, but I do know that this is not a love letter to drugs. You know, I, yeah. I think it was a little bit hard to distinguish that season one because it's so beautifully shot. I think you're right. Season two, it's very, very clear, painfully obvious that, that it's a cautionary tale. You said Cal's going through changes. Can you, can you tease anything for me? What can you tell me? Look, what I can say is that my hopes for this character is that he ends up finding himself in a set of circumstances where he can be a good parent, where he can be the father that he never got a chance to be. I don't want to spoil too much of it, but the finale is going to be cool. Thanks for the chat. I really appreciate it. Anytime, Joanna. All right, that is uh, it for us this week. We'll be back, of course, with episode five next week. Uh, Nora, until then, I know you're very busy. There's a lot. I've heard that there's a lot going on with football right now. Where, Where can folks find you? They can hear me Sunday on the Ringer NFL show with Kevin Clark, Stephen Ruiz, and Benjamin Solak. We will be all together to break down the conference championship games. Maybe Joe Burrow will wear sunglasses again. Who's to say? And then the following week, we're going to be getting ready for the Super Bowl. We're all going to be in LA. It's going to be very exciting. There's going to be a lot of stuff coming out of that. And we will make sure to keep everybody posted. Excellent. Uh, You'll hear me talking about other TV in this feed and elsewhere. This episode was produced by Steve Allman and we will see you, you know, hopefully not on the road where Cal is driving next week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, 
File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.